Assalamu alaikum. Welcome back to season five of the Islamic History Podcast. I'm your host, Mutaki Ismail. Before we begin, I'd like to thank Faizuddin, Roland, Samarin, and Ismail for their generous donations. In this series, we are discussing the events of World War I that ultimately led to the partition of the Ottoman Empire. This is episode 516, Turks and Armenians. Before we get into the episode, let's do a brief recap of where we are so far. The Ottomans were doing better than expected in the early stages of the war. And with the addition of Bulgaria, the Central Powers now formed a single, unbroken block from Germany to Istanbul. Growing desperate, the British began working on Kitchener's plan for an Arab caliphate and opened negotiations with Sharif Hussein of Mecca. While dealing with Sharif Hussein, the British and French made a secret agreement with each other about how they would split up the Middle East. Towards the end of these talks, Mark Sykes realized it would be in Britain's best interest to curry favor with the growing Zionist movement. And with that, let's begin our discussion of the Armenian atrocities of 1915. First, let's acknowledge that this is a sensitive topic and it is difficult to discuss without seeming biased. All I can do is assure you that I'm trying to be as impartial as possible when covering such a complicated topic in just a few minutes. Let's begin with some background. A Brief History of Ottoman-Armenian Relations Armenia was once an independent kingdom known as the Kingdom of Armenia. The two primary groups within the Kingdom of Armenia were the Christian Armenians and the Muslim Kurds. There are some who believe Armenians and Kurds share the same ethnic origins. Over the centuries, however, the religions of Christianity and Islam separated them into two distinct cultural and ethnic groups. With this separation came a deep-seated rivalry and hostility between the two groups which still exist to this day. Located in eastern Anatolia, the western part of the Kingdom of Armenia was absorbed into the Ottoman Empire in the 16th century and became known as Turkish Armenia. The eastern part of the Kingdom of Armenia eventually became part of Russia and was known as Russian Armenia. The Ottoman Milet system gave religious minorities a great deal of autonomy and religious liberties. Basically, everything that did not come under the authority of the Ottoman central government was left up to the local leaders of minority faiths. The word Milet is derived from the Arabic word Milla. Milla can have many meanings, but one of them is religion. An example of this is seen in the Qur'an in chapter 16, verse 123, which reads, ثُمَّ أَوْحَيْنَا إِلَيْكَ مِلَّةَ إِبْرَاهِيمَ حَنِيفًا The translation of which is, Then we reveal to you to follow the religion of Abraham, the upright. The Millet system allowed the Armenian church to become the de facto government in Turkish Armenia, which helped to preserve and strengthen Armenian culture and language. And like many other countries, much of Anatolia was also under a feudal system. This is where feudal lords owned large tracts of land which were worked on by peasants. 
While far from perfect, the feudal system created a certain bond between the landowners and the peasants. Both sides needed each other, minimizing the potential for animosity and strife. However, in 1856, things began to change. The Ottoman Empire decided to modernize and introduced a secular form of government more in line with Western nations. They ended the Milet system and concentrated more authority in the central government. While the intention was to govern all citizens by the same set of rules, these new policies led to a loss in Armenian autonomy. In another attempt to modernize, the Ottoman government also ended the feudal system. The feudal lords were replaced with governors appointed by the central government. However, some of these governors were corrupt and neglected the people living under them. And, since they were appointed and not elected officials, they were not accountable to the people they governed. Some of these governors oppressed their subjects and levied exorbitant taxes. And since the governor often had ties with the central government through nepotism or some other means, the average citizen had no other recourse. These reforms changed the relationship between the Ottoman government and the Armenians. Many Armenians began to express nationalist sentiments and entertain the idea of secession. In the decades preceding the Great War, the Ottomans had lost several conflicts against Russia and the Balkan states, leading to the loss of most of their European territory. These losses made the Ottoman government very paranoid about independence movements from its religious and ethnic minorities. And as the Armenians, who were both religious and ethnic minorities, began to express more nationalist rhetoric, they fell under heavier government scrutiny. It was an open secret that Russia wanted to use the Armenians to further weaken the Ottoman Empire. In fact, before World War I even started, Russia had declared its right to intervene in Ottoman internal affairs in order to protect the Armenians. That's because the late 1800s and the early 1900s saw several violent clashes between the Armenians and the Ottoman government. Throughout this period, their relationship continued to deteriorate. One of the most infamous outbreaks of violence took place in Adana in southern Anatolia in 1909. First, a little background. The Ottoman Sultan Abdul Hamid II was deposed by the Young Turks in 1908, which we discussed in the first episode of this series. The Young Turks turned the empire into a constitutional monarchy where the Sultan was just a figurehead and Parliament ran everything. Most Armenians supported the Young Turks since one of their platforms was equal status for all ethnic and religious minorities. However, barely a year later, royalist supporters of the Sultan overthrew the Young Turks and reinstalled Abdul Hamid II as absolute ruler. The Sultan's brief return to power sparked violence all over Anatolia. Muslim supporters of the Sultan fought Muslim supporters of the Young Turks. Some communities used the chaos as an opportunity to settle old scores and some nationalists used the opportunity to incite rebellion. However, the violence in Adana was particularly bad. 
it is difficult to determine how the killing started. Some sources say Muslim mobs attacked the Armenian communities of Adana. When the local government called the military in to quell the violence, the military sided with the Muslims and also attacked the Armenians. Other sources say these attacks were sparked by the murder of three Muslims by Armenians. The Muslims of Adana demanded the local governor take action, and when he didn't, they took matters into their own hands. Regardless of how the violence started, it soon spread beyond Adana and into the surrounding areas. Muslim and Armenian mobs attacked each other while Armenian militias fought against Ottoman troops. Many modern sources suggest nearly 30,000 Armenians were killed in Adana. However, this number is disputed as the total population of Armenians in Adana at the time was just under 50,000. The Ottoman Ministry of the Interior put the numbers at just under 3,500 deaths with nearly equal Muslim and Armenian casualties. When order was finally restored, several hearings and trials were held regarding the violence in Adana. Ultimately, 15 people were deemed responsible and sentenced to death, nine of them Muslim and six non-Muslim. The Atrocities of 1915 So far, we've only discussed the incidents before World War I. These incidents prove that there was already a high level of tension between the Armenian community and the Ottoman government. Things got much worse once the war was underway. It started with the Battle of Sarakamish, which we discussed in Episode 7 of this series. During this battle, Enver Pasha sent Kurdish soldiers into Turkish Armenia in preparation for his fight against Russia. He had to be aware of the historical animosity between Kurds and Armenians, and it is possible he did this to deliberately antagonize local Armenian nationalists. The Battle of Sarakamish began in December 1914 and ended in January 1915. As we've learned before, the battle was a complete disaster for the Ottomans and probably ruined whatever chances they had against the more advanced Western militaries. Enver Pasha blamed this defeat on the Armenians. And while there were Armenian militias fighting for the Russians, Enver's incompetence was more at fault. Nonetheless, the Ottoman government grew even more suspicious of its Armenian citizens. There was a genuine concern that the Armenians in eastern Anatolia could act as a fifth column within the empire. This suspicion increased even more when the Gallipoli campaign began in the spring of 1915. At the onset of this campaign, everyone thought this would knock the Ottomans out of the war. The mighty British and French navies were supposed to roll over the weak Ottoman defenses and occupy Istanbul within a week. Even the Ottomans believed this to be true. They had very little hope of defending the Dardanelles and were simply hoping to drain the enemy when they attacked the capital. The Armenians of Istanbul did not hide their support for the Entente powers. Many of them openly celebrated the inevitable Allied invasion, believing it would ultimately lead to an independent Armenian state. This blatant support of the Allies confirmed Ottoman suspicions. 
Talat Pasha, the Ottoman Grand Vizier of the Empire, formulated a two-part plan to weaken the Armenian community's ability to assist the Allies. In the first phase of his plan, Talat Pasha ordered the arrest and deportation of all Armenian intellectuals in Istanbul on April 24, 1915. These included Armenian poets, scholars, artists, intellectuals, writers, entrepreneurs, scientists, and educators. Of the nearly 300 Armenians arrested, at least 230 died while in Ottoman custody. The second phase of Talat Pasha's plan began in May 1915 when the Ottoman parliament, which was dominated by the Young Turks, passed the Temporary Deportation Act. This new law legalized the deportation of anyone considered a threat to the empire. Talat Pasha used it to order the forced relocation of hundreds of thousands of Armenians from eastern Anatolia to Darozor in the Syrian desert. The forced deportation was carried out by the Ottoman military and led to countless atrocities. First, there were the soldiers carrying out the deportations. Many of them were Kurds who had an ancient rivalry with the Armenians. And besides the Kurds, there were many Ottoman soldiers who blamed the Armenians for their loss at Sarakamish. While it is impossible to know the exact numbers, there are several reports of beatings, rapes, and arbitrary killings committed by Ottoman soldiers against the Armenian deportees. The important question is whether these were systematic acts ordered from up high or isolated incidents by rogue soldiers. The second problem the Armenians faced was the difficulty of traveling over 200 miles through deserts and mountains. The Ottoman government did not provide transportation, so most of the Armenians had to walk the entire way. Nor did the government provide food and shelter for the deported Armenians. This meant almost certain doom for those Armenians who were elderly, sick, pregnant, or otherwise compromised. Eventually, word of these deportations got out and brought global scrutiny on the Ottomans. The German government initially ignored the reports of atrocities against Armenians. However, by July 1915, they could no longer turn a blind eye to the stories reported by their own officers who assisted with the deportations. Germany and Austria, aware of the international backlash, advised Talat Pasha to use restraint, warning him that this would hurt their prospects in the war. By October 1915, reports of the atrocities were still coming in and it was clear that Talat Pasha was not heeding their warnings. Germany considered issuing a statement that they were not involved in these events. However, they decided not to as they did not want to endanger the relationship with the Ottomans. The rest of the world reacted with shock and horror at the stories coming out of Anatolia. The British, French, and Russian governments denounced the Ottomans, accusing them of mass murder. These reports convinced the European powers that the Ottomans could not be trusted to rule over non-Muslims. In time, this idea was extended even further so that many Europeans came to believe that the Ottomans shouldn't rule over non-Turks at all, regardless of their religion. What is often not reported are the atrocities committed by Armenian militias. 
In the years following the deportations, as the war took its toll, law and order broke down in the remote parts of Anatolia. This allowed armed bands of all stripes to roam freely in some regions. Before the end of World War I, at least a quarter of a million Kurds and other Muslims in eastern Anatolia and the Caucasus were killed by Armenian militants. Was it a genocide? Today, the main question is if these events can be classified as part of a larger genocide against the Armenian people. The modern Republic of Turkey has repeatedly and historically denied labeling the forced migrations as a genocide. They admit that there were atrocities, but they say that these do not amount to the level of genocide. There are also political and financial reasons for Turkey to resist the genocide label. Admitting it was a genocide could lead to legal action against the Turkish government and perhaps even reparations. As of 2019, 32 countries have officially recognized the forced migration as a genocide. In October 2019, the United States House of Representatives passed a resolution recognizing the migration as a genocide. Most of the nations in the Middle East, including Israel, have not recognized it as a genocide. Turkey is one of Israel's few allies in the Middle East, and Israel is reluctant to jeopardize that relationship. The only Muslim-majority nations that have recognized it as a genocide are Syria and Libya. However, both have done so fairly recently, Syria in 2015 and Libya in 2019. Furthermore, both of these nations were mired in devastating civil wars, so it is possible that there were political motives involved. I'll leave you to determine what those motives may have been. You will have to make up your own mind whether the forced migration of Armenians in 1915 was genocide or not. To help you decide, here is Merriam-Webster's definition of genocide. The deliberate and systematic destruction of a racial, political, or cultural group. In the next episode, we are going to turn our attention to the Middle East where the British are about to engage the Ottomans on the banks of the Tigris River. You've been listening to the Islamic History Podcast, and we hope you've enjoyed the show. Subscribe to us on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify, Podbean, Google, or wherever you listen to podcasts. Visit islamichistorypodcast.com slash WWI to find other episodes in this series. To learn more about the life of the last messenger of God, subscribe to our other show, The Prophet Muhammad Podcast. If you enjoyed these podcasts, please leave a five-star rating and review and share with your friends and family. The Islamic History Podcast is 100% listener-supported. You can support our work and get access to exclusive content by becoming a patron at patreon.com slash islamichistory. Stay tuned for a brief clip from one of these premium shows. Or, to make a one-time donation, visit islamichistorypodcast.com slash donate. Special thanks to Brother Zulfi Kassiroj for his research and support of the show, and thanks to all of our Patreon subscribers. 
Until next time, my name is Mutaki Ismail for the Islamic History Podcast. Assalamu alaikum wa rahmatullahi wa barakatuh. Assalamu alaikum. Welcome back to Islamic History Exclusive. This is the podcast exclusively for Patreon subscribers of the Islamic History Podcast. And in this series, we are going over the life of Salahuddin al-Ayyubi, known to the West as Saladin. In this episode, we are going to discuss the establishment and creation of the Crusader States, also known as Utremer, as well as the Muslim powers in the region at this time. But before we get into that, let's begin with a recap of where we are so far. The Crusades were launched in the year 1097. Over the next couple of years, thousands of Frankish warriors crossed the Bosporus Strait into modern-day Turkey intent on capturing Jerusalem. Along the way, the Crusaders captured Nicaea and Antioch before laying siege to Jerusalem. Jerusalem stood for about two days but eventually fell to the Crusaders, leading to the wholesale slaughter of most of the city's Muslim and Jewish population. With Jerusalem in Frankish hands, most of the Crusaders returned to Europe, considering their quest complete. Those that remained now had to figure out how to hold on to their recent acquisitions. In this episode, we will discuss how the Crusader states were established and consolidated. We'll also briefly go over the various Muslim powers in the region. After Jerusalem fell in 1099, the Crusaders now held several Middle Eastern cities. However, these cities were not physically connected and were still surrounded by huge swaths of Muslim territory. In order to survive, the Crusaders would have to expand their territory and gain access to ports along the Mediterranean Sea. They would also need more land in order to acquire natural resources and provide a buffer to their newly conquered cities. This process of gradual expansion from the initially conquered cities led to the establishment of the Crusader States or Outremer as it was known to the Franks. Outremer comes from the French phrase meaning beyond the sea. There were four major Crusader States. The County of Edessa, founded in 1098. The Principality of Antioch, also founded in 1098. The Kingdom of Jerusalem, founded in 1099. And the County of Tripoli, founded in 1109. While there were many men involved with the establishment and expansion of Outremer, that is, the Crusader states, some were more prominent than others. Most of these men came over in the first crusade that ultimately led to the conquest of Jerusalem. Of these men, the two most important were probably Baldwin of Bouillon and Tancred of Hauteville. 